The age of personalised medicine has arrived with Bioceuticals Clinical Services DNA testing. Advances in genetic testing mean that we can address an individual's health needs according to their unique genetic profile. For more information, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line again today is Dr. Denise Furness, a molecular geneticist and nutritionist with over 16 years experience who conducted her PhD in nutritional genomics and genomic health at CSIRO Human Nutrition under the mentorship of the famed Professor Michael Fennick. She's been involved in genetics and nutrition health research for over 13 years and was principal investigator in Predicting Adverse Pregnancy Study at the Women's and Children's Hospital Adelaide and was involved in the SCOPE studies. You can find out more about them at scopestudy.net. Her interests include the diagnosis and treatment of underlying triggers such as detoxification, inflammation, oxidative stress and methylation. Denise works closely with integrative practitioners in order to apply this knowledge and address the possible underlying issues associated with various health concerns, including fertility, gastrointestinal disorders, and mental health. Warmly, I welcome you back to FX Medicine. How are you, Denise? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I've got to say, you've earned it. I don't know how you stop. You, like, you just go, go, go. Yeah, it feels like a long time ago that I was, uh, you know, writing grants and running those studies back in the hospital days. I've sort of been in the in the clinical practice world now for about five years, but it's nice to have you mention it because that's where it all began. Do you still keep in contact with those other investigators and, and find out what what's transpired since those studies finished? Or indeed, Absolutely. is the scope finished? Absolutely. So, well, scope, scope was, a, it was a huge study that was um, a sort of a global effort with people in Manchester and Ireland and New Zealand. Um, a lot of that has been written up. The PAPO study was a small study. That was mine. I ran that in my um, postdoc. Um, to be honest, we didn't end up writing it all up. I sort of moved on and had babies. But um, I do stay in contact with all of those people, including Michael Fennick. And I actually, even though I'm in clinical practice now, I am doing a bit of research around genetics. And um, someone that I used to work with at CSIRO is, is helping me with some of the research I'm doing now. So we do all stay in touch. And um, interestingly, I was just over in New York uh, last week at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium, and it was amazing to see Jeffrey Bland get up and present research that was done around about 15 years ago at CSIRO that yeah. I was, not my research around um, pregnancy and fertility, but it was Alzheimer's research. It was actually Phil Thomas and Michael Fenning, but I was there with them while Phil was doing his PhD. We were in the same lab together. and. It really was the same work I was doing, DNA damage and nutrigenomics, methylation, but in relation to Alzheimer's, not pregnancy. And he was saying that this is crucial, the way of the future. And that was so exciting. I ran up to Jeffrey and said, guess what? You know, that, that's the lab I worked in. I worked with those people. And I said, and I have left research and I'm doing it in the clinic. And yeah. he was uh, 
so excited because you know he he and others uh, were sort of saying this is the way of the future genetics epigenetics oh for sure um, you know preventative medicine and and really that's why I left research and moved into this more clinical role because mm. I do believe we really can help people when we are addressing these underlying factors. Oh, yeah. When you get, you know, in the past, there was pharmaceutical companies. I remember one in particular that got dragged across the coals for uh, using research in India. Uh, so they used women from India and smothered, if you like, the important point that they have a different response to hormonal interventions. So mm. they were dragged across the coals because the results look glowing, but they may not glow so much in other cultures. So this mm. whole thing about personalised medicine really does come down to our genes. Exactly. So you've got your pharmacogenomics that do play a huge role in the way that people can metabolise different medications and pharmaceuticals. And then we've got the nutrigenomics, which is obviously where um, I come into it, do a, doing a lot of genetic testing in relation to how well people may metabolize nutrients or how sensitive they are to particular toxins. Or, um, for example, today, you know, I think the topic is really we want to talk about hormones and fertility. We know that genetic variations can play a role in how well someone will produce estrogens or break them down and how well they can actually eliminate them from the body. Let's talk about that. The topic is our genes affect our sex hormones. Why are we seeing so many sex hormone metabolism issues, so much more than before? Polycystic ovarian syndrome was a rare thing in my day, despite the fact that it may be better reported now, and there was a lot of um, effort into bringing it into the limelight. What other factors are involved in sex hormone metabolism issues? Well, firstly, I'll say that it's not our genetics that are driving this because our genes really haven't changed in that short amount of time. But what has changed is our environment. Mm. So, you know, we are exposed to all these things called xenoestrogens. They're found in plastics and, you know, and particularly people that are heating plastic in the microwave. Please don't because these chemicals can leach into your food. And when we say xenoestrogens, these are things that act like estrogen in the body. They can bind to the estrogen receptors and cause these estrogen-like effects. So, the chemicals in the environment play a role. Our food plays a role. I mean, we think about farming and agriculture. A lot of animals are given um, hormones. Um, we then ingest these these meats, um, particularly, you know, younger children are more sensitive to some of these chemicals and possibly hormones in the food chain. Um, I mean, for, for those that this is a new area, you can even get onto books. Um, such as One Bite at a Time. Some of you may know Tabitha McIntosh. Ah, yes. Um, the other author, yes, Sarah Lance. So there's a lot of a lot of um, information that is becoming available now that we can learn about these things in our environment. And I do think the environment is the biggest factor in this. But also um, when we're thinking about these hormone-related disorders, particularly around estrogens, uh, we know that... Um, fat mass is directly correlated with the amount of estrogen. So when we think about girls that are going through puberty or when um, the onset of menstruation is, it's due to the amount of estrogen. And that occurs when these females or younger girls have enough um, fat really on their body. That triggers the body to say, all right, well, um, we're going to produce more estrogen and that's going to result in um, stimulating the growth of reproductive organs, breast tissue, etc. And a lot of younger girls now are a lot heavier. Um, they do have an increased fat mass and that's going to increase the estrogen um, circulating in their bodies and then bringing on 
um, the menstrual cycle earlier and we know a lot of these hormone-related disorders are associated with exposure, so an increased exposure to hormones, an increased exposure to estrogens and estrogen metabolites. So if someone is menstruating earlier, then obviously that's going to increase um, and, and because of the hormones, that's going to increase the exposure to the hormones. So I would say the environment um, is the biggest factor, but there are definitely genetic predispositions. Right. So some of us, some of us will be able to tolerate a higher amount of estrogen. We'll convert it into the metabolites um, at a at a faster rate, and also then we'll metabolize it perhaps down a safer pathway, the two hydroxy metabolism, and then we can. Um, rid of that through methylation, which is, you know, with the compt enzyme or glucuronidation or sulfation or even the conjugation of glutathione. So when you're thinking about hormones, you really want to think about detoxification. It's this, it's similar phase one and phase two pathways that help us excrete these hormones from the body. And indeed, when you're talking about women being heavier, I should say girls being heavier nowadays, and so there's a greater likelihood that they're overweight. And this is, we've got to be really careful here with body image and the whole anorexia issue and all of this thing and it, what do you call it? Body shaming, that sort of thing. Mm. However, facts are facts. Yeah. We are all. And I'm, I'm not saying girls should be skinnier. You're exactly right. But we need to be realistic. Facts are facts. And a lot of us are heavier than we should be. We want a healthy weight. Yeah. That's right. With healthy activity. But it's really interesting when you look at the reasons for that um, increased weight. That's, you know, very largely diet and certainly there's activity there as well. But when you're talking about the dietary components, what can you eat that would decrease the recirculation of estrogen metabolites? Fibre. Well, they're not eating that because they're eating fats and carbs and they're not eating the fibre. So Mm, it's really mm. interesting how there's a a self-propagation almost of the, you know, fat begets fat um, concept. Mm, and I mentioned, I guess, that direct association with the possibility of hormones coming through the food chain. But as you mentioned, there's fiber, but also eating real food, eating plenty oh, yeah. of, uh, you know, cruciferous vegetables. We know that can help um, with, you know, estrogen metabolism and the metabolism of, of toxins in the, in the body. But also just having a good, healthy, balanced diet with real food is going to support that gut microbiota. And the healthier your gut is, the better you are at dealing with hormones because we know that dysbiosis can also affect um, uh, hormones yes. being, you know, recirculated back into the system. So it really comes down to a lot of those basics of, you know, um, like you said, exercise is important for maintaining weight, but also breaking down um, other sort of stress hormones and things that links in with COMPT. So there is a bit of a direct relationship between uh, breaking down estrogens and catecholamines. Um, exercise can help stimulate that. Uh, also, you know, sleep um, and, and things like that. So getting back to the basics can can improve people's hormonal balance, which then will obviously help with, you know, hormonal-related disorders. So it's really interesting you say that because how often do we bang on about getting rid of the bright screens at night and having a restful sleep, getting enough hours of sleep? Um, and we're talking about, you know, the, the coming into the teenage years here, the formative age, you know, for body type, if not um, coping mechanisms and stress. But you also have um, things like family relationships. I was very interested to learn there was a really interesting story with regards to, you know, psychosocial stressors from family breakdown affecting 
early menarche, early menstruation. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. Fascinating. Mm. So when you think about stress, sleep, diet, mm. exercise, <laughs> ring a bell for every sort of condition known to man? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because the social, the social and stress um, you know, interactions uh, are also um, something that comes into play here. And people might be listening thinking, well, why do we care about genetics with everything they've just said? And um, yes, that could make sense if someone comes in, if you're a practitioner listening to this and someone does come in and they do have um, serious problems with their sleep, they're not sleeping well, they are overweight, they're not eating well, you definitely want to go there first. You're probably not going to jump into genetic testing. But often the patients, um, nearly all the patients I see, have already started working at these things. They have already um, made changes to their diet. Many of them, many of them, may be gluten or dairy free. They know that impacts with inflammation, or they might have food sensitivities. Um, and they've tried to get a lot of this or these steps in order. And the genetics is something that you'd come to when people have made changes, but perhaps they're not getting the results that they were expecting, or they're right. still having hormonal problems. You then may want to dig a little deeper and say, well, you know, why, why do you have, let's just say they've measured their estrogen metabolites and they've got high levels of 4-hydroxy, which we know that's the one that um, can really cause quinones. Yeah. yeah, quinones, DNA damage, possibly even cancer. So someone might come to you and say, well, I've made these changes, but I still, I still have, I guess if you put in, you know, italics, estrogen dominance, or I've got high estrogen, or I've got issues with metabolites. You then may want to say, well, let's dig a little deeper and find out why. You know, do do we need to start doing some functional testing or some genetics to understand what's going on in your body? And the other thing with genetics too is often um, people are confused with why these things are happening to them, and it allows you to be able to explain things. Well, this is your predisposition or your risk, and then you then go from there and say, well, what can we do about that? Um, and you can focus on, well, is it likely to be, say, phase one, or is it phase two, is it oxidative stress, things like that. So let's let's talk about which hormones are affected by which genes, because this sort of ties into what you would do on a clinical level, if you, what you just mentioned with regards to detoxification, phase one, phase two, and what genes affect those processes. Can we go mm. through a, a few of the, the I'd love to. genetic I'd love to. impacts? Of course I would. That's the thing I want to talk about the most. <laughs> All right. So, so the obvious one's SIPE. There must be a myriad of genes. I know of a yeah. couple with regards to medications. So the cytochrome P450s, or some people call them the SIPE or the SIP genes, are the genes that code for phase one detoxification enzymes. And we know these SIP enzymes can often metabolize multiple things. Um, some of you may be aware of them in relation to pharmacogenomics, so breaking down the drugs, but they're also important for breaking down hormones and chemicals and toxins we're exposed to. Um, if, if for those that know a bit about hormone metabolism, if I sort of start at the beginning, um, for those that don't, you'll still be interested or you could always listen to this again and pull out a picture, Google, Google hormone or estrogen metabolism and, and then sort of follow through. But the first one I would mention would be the CYP or the CYP. 17A1. CYP17A1 is something that converts progesterone or pregnenolone into the androgens. And there's a genetic variation that can increase enzyme activity. So 
So that would mean that progesterone could get pushed over to the androgens. Therefore, that person may be at risk of having a little, a little lower estrogen levels, um, more of the androgens. And then the next step, um, I'm sure many of the listeners would have heard about this one, is the CYP19A1, commonly known as aromatase. So right. aromatase can then come in um, or is the next step that converts those androgens into estrogens. And again, there's a genetic variation that we can test for. But there's also a lot of lifestyle factors that influence aromatase, and that's why we hear a lot about it. So visceral um, adiposity, so those that have got an um, increased belly fat, um, we know now that fat isn't just a storage molecule of energy um, or a storage, not really a molecule, but a storage you know, organ or storage tissue. Now we really think of it like an endocrine organ or endocrine tissue because it does have um, the ability to produce hormones such as estrogen, but also inflammatory compounds. So, you know, cytokines that stimulate the immune system and can lead to chronic inflammation. So for those that have um, extra fat mass or um, even those that are drinking alcohol, alcohol can upregulate or switch on aromatase. So for guys that don't want their testosterone being converted to estrogen a little quicker, maybe lay off the alcohol. Um, Plus, there's a genetic variation, as I mentioned. So there are a couple of steps in sort of producing estrogen in the pathway. And then we have some more cytochrome P450s. Um, there's CYP1A1, CYP1B1, and others that are involved in converting the estrogen, so the, you know, the estradiol, um, you know, your E1, your E2, um, down into those estrogen metabolites, that first sort of step in breaking down the estrogens. And we can have either the 2-hydroxy, which is thought to be the safest. Some call it the beneficial estrogen, but reality is it's still a metabolite that can be yeah. reactive. Um, so I do say to people it's still an active metabolite that needs to be broken down, it, it, um, though it is a safer um, option than the 4-hydroxy or the 16-hydroxy. So the 4-hydroxy estrogen comes from... Um, the conversion using cytochrome P451B1. Now, there's a lot of research around 1B1, and we know that um, the genetic variation that increases activity can um, make people uh, more susceptible to having uh, more of those 4-hydroxy metabolites in comparison to the 2-hydroxy, which comes from CYP1A1. Um, CYP1B1, CYP1A1, both of these are actually involved in not just hormone metabolism, but also breaking down or metabolizing what are known as uh, PAHs or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. These are things found in combustion fuels. So think about car exhaust fumes, also cigarette smoke, um, even not they're the main players, but even a, a bit of um, breaking down caffeine. It's really CYP1A2 that's the main player in caffeine. Mm. But if you are consuming a lot of these things or exposed to a lot of these chemicals, that can also influence um, the, the metabolism of these estrogens. So we can test for these SNPs and say to someone, well, you are more at risk of having this 4-hydroxyestrogen. That could be part of the reason why you've got um, higher levels of this particular metabolite. Or if they haven't had testing done, it might then trigger you to say, well, you do have high estrogen you have a genetic variation that makes you more susceptible to the 4-hydroxy. We want to test this and find out, do you actually have high levels? Because if you do, we want to 
start to treat that or try to manage that as quick as possible because the 4-hydroxy, as well as the 16, but particularly the 4-hydroxy, can cause the quinones, which leads to DNA damage. Um, and then, you know, DNA damage, as we know, can cause a number of um, outcomes, including cancers. Yeah. So the, the testing can also help you determine if you want to then go and do, you know, other testing. Because remember, the genetics will only tell us about risk and predisposition. You're talking to the patient about the likelihood um, of something happening within them based on the genes they've inherited from their parents. You obviously have to measure levels to find out if that gene is expressing or having um, an impact on the individual. So that's sort of phase one, which I've gone through, but then there's the phase two detoxification enzymes as well. And one of the big players is COMPT, catechol o methyl transferase. Many of the listeners probably know COMPT because it's linked with um, stress and anxiety, um, some associations possibly with mental health because it does break down the catecholamine, so your dopamine, adrenaline and noradrenaline. But it also breaks down catechol estrogens. And when I just mentioned these estrogen metabolites, the 2-hydroxy, the 4-hydroxy and the 16-hydroxy, they are actually catechol estrogens. So it's that same enzyme that breaks those down. And we know there's a genetic variation that significantly impacts on how well COMPT can function. So some people will be slower um, or that they're not as efficient at breaking down these metabolites. And in addition to having a genetic variation, we know that nutrition plays a big role here too because mm. the cofactor is magnesium and being a methyltransferase, you obviously need to have plenty of your folate and B vitamins to make those methyl groups. So you can talk to people there about um, you know, nutrition and, um, and their ability or likelihood of breaking down these things at a faster or slower rate. And then you've got genetic variations in our glutathione transferases, which is also another important mechanism for breaking down or excreting, safely excreting hormones and other chemicals. So there's a GSTP1, which is particularly relevant when we think about hormones. So glutathione transferase P1. For the listeners, I remember P1 as peripheral because most of your phase two and your glutathione transferase enzymes are in the liver. So you've got your GST1, M1, there's a whole family of them. Um, but the P1 is what's found predominantly in other tissues like breast. Um, so if you're thinking about getting rid of catechol estrogens in the breast tissue, you've got your GSTP1, but also in the brain and the lungs and things like that. So there are genetic variations that can affect how well that GSTP1 can clear uh, catechol estrogens and chemicals from the body. And there's one more I probably want to mention that listeners may or may not have heard of, and that's the NQ01 or quinone reductase. And the reason I want to mention that one is because if someone does have high estrogen metabolites and are producing quinones or are likely to be producing these quinones that are quite dangerous, it's the quinone reductase along with the glutathione transferases that help neutralize, I guess, or break down those quinones so they can't go and cause um, cellular damage and DNA damage and the genetic variation within NQ01 actually has a huge impact on how well that enzyme can work. So depending on the research papers you read, some will say that there is actually no activity at all if you inherit the homozygous, so meaning two variants. So therefore um, high risk? Hugely high risk. Yeah. So these people don't have the ability or the same ability as someone that has a fully functioning NQ01. Now that doesn't mean 
they can't break down quinones at all. There are other pathways and mechanisms in the body, but the NQO1 does play a big role. So these people that have inherited the normal or sort of so-called normal genotype definitely have a, a better ability to get rid of those quinones, reduce oxidative stress, um, and help with that. And NQO1, interestingly, too, is what regenerates CoQ10 into the active form as well as vitamin E. So it acts as a phase two detox enzyme with quinones, even benzoquinones. People are more sensitive to benzene if they've got the genetic variation, but it also acts as an antioxidant by helping to um, regenerate our antioxidants once they become oxidized. So that's a really interesting one that I love looking at with the patients as well. That's really interesting you say that about the CoQ10 and the benzenes because that's a metabolic pathway from tyrosine. Uh, where, Ooh, you're about to teach me something. Well, I, I actually found this when I was looking at um, the actions of statins and why mm. would some people get myositis and others not. Uh, sorry, forgive me. If you've got an HMG, HMG coenzyme A reductase inhibitor, a statin, mm -hmm. and they're really effective, then why don't you get all of patients um, getting muscle pains? There must be an accessory pathway. And that's yes. through tyrosine and phenylalanine. Um, you make CoQ10 through tyrosine and phenylalanine. So I think phenylalanine, tyrosine, L-dopa, dopamine. I'm thinking that way. Which way is the CoQ10 coming from? That's the way. That is. Okay. Yeah. It's an accessory pathway. And um, mm. along that pathway is the benzoates. So it, yeah. it just rings so true when you're talking about mm. this. Isn't it exciting when you put it all together? Yeah. It's really cool when you start looking at the pathways. And that's why I said to the listeners, for those that are familiar with the area, you're probably following me going, wow, for those that aren't, you probably just thought, my goodness, she spoke about so many genes, what <laughs> yeah. is it? But go and have a look um, at something with, you know, phase one, phase two detox and hormones because you'll be able to follow and go, oh, okay. And also, um, and then when you start to think about, well, what what is the area for that patient? Is it phase one? You know, do we want to do something to support that? Or is it phase two? Or is it oxidative stress? You know, if it, if they do have genetic variations, NQO1, and think about all those important endogenous antioxidants you can test for too. So SOD2 or MN-SOD, superoxide dismutase, a very powerful endogenous antioxidant. Again, there's a genetic variation that has a huge impact on how well that enzyme can work. Yeah. If someone's got that, they need the cofactor manganese, and so many of us are deficient in some of these trace elements and minerals. So that might, you know, stimulate you to say, well... I'm going to test manganese or I'm going to give them a tiny bit of manganese if you think their diet is deficient. Um, so, so yeah, there's a lot that you can look at that can help you then, I guess, tailor um, specific nutrients or, you know, foods or lifestyle changes to help that person sort of optimise their health um, more from, from a mechanistic point of view like yeah. detoxification or methylation um, or, you know, managing inflammation and then working their way up for them to get to get well rather than sort of coming from the top down and saying, well, I might just give you this hormone. Of course, some people will need hormones. I'm not saying don't do that, but addressing some of these issues can really help people get to those underlying causes um, and start to balance these things. The big thing for me, though, was um, you can try and learn a pathway or, you know, muscles, the nerves, you know, the, the 12 cranial nerves by mnemonics, and you can learn these things by rote. I get that. And mm. they'll last in your memory a certain period of time, and then they'll fade if you don't use them. But the real trick for me was having a meaning for a patient. That's yeah. where I remember something because it mm -hmm. now has a reason to help mm -hmm. somebody.
And often the patients will resonate with what you're saying. You start talking about, say, let's say the antioxidant enzymes and you say to them, well, you know, there's a number of things we can do if you are at increased risk for high oxidative stress. Let's talk about the exercise you've done in the past. How have you responded? And if they say, oh, I tried to do some HIIT training. I pushed myself to the maximum and I was wiped out for days. Well, mm. you can say to them, well, actually, your capacity to deal with oxidative stress, which is produced you know, from ATP, the mitochondria, when yeah. you're exercising, is maybe not as good as your friend who did the HIIT training with you and coped really well. You want to start to increment or you know, have incremental changes in your exercise and at a slower pace and then your body will adapt because you can upregulate or switch on these antioxidant enzymes through physical activity. Mm. But um, and particularly the patients that I work with are often unwell, so you know that that it does put a big burden on them if they've got issues with oxidative stress or inflammation and they do push themselves. Mm. But it's being able to put all that stuff in context and then guide people with you know some lifestyle changes or diet and. I mean, I think, I've obviously biased to do genetics, but, you know, they love it. They start to go, well, this stuff makes sense, or, oh, I've noticed that. Or you talk to them about caffeine metabolism, for example, you know, sip 1A2, and they're like, you're right. I drink a coffee and I get palpitations or I get a bit jittery, and they'll be like, that's why I can't drink coffee. I'm like, yes, because you are a slow metabolizer. Your body doesn't break it down. Plus, you're exposed to this, this, and this, and the enzyme is busy trying to break down these environmental pollutants that you, you know, can't necessarily control your exposure to. What other uh, genetic impacts? Um, so we've mentioned COMPT, the various CYP enzymes, glutathione transferase P1. Mm. Can I ask, by the by, P1, what does that stand for? So um, I think, it, are they Greek? You might be able to tell me. It's theta, mu and pi. Ah, so pi so, 1, right. Gotcha. Yes, so it's high one, and as I said, I gave the listeners my little trick, which I don't need it anymore, but once I started in genetics, that's what made me remember the, the P was peripheral because most of these are predominantly found in the liver, gotcha. whereas the P1, which is why um, it's particularly interesting when we're thinking about um, hormone metabolism because it is more in those um, reproductive gotcha. um, organs in compare, compared to the liver. So yeah, mu, theta, and pi. Yep. Um, then with the manganese sod, MN sod. What else? Sod too. Um, there are other genetic uh, variations in um, antioxidant enzymes. There's catalase, glutathione peroxidase. Even from a nutrient perspective, you can come at this um, in relation to methylation, which is an important way of, of dealing with some of these, um, or particularly the estrogen metabolism. So thinking about the ones that most people know, MTHFR, um, you know, MTR, things like that, that influence methylation, homocysteine metabolism, even PEMPT. If you want to talk about methylation, one of my new favorite genes is PEMPT, phosphatidylethanolamine methyltransferase. Right. You know PEMPT? Nope. My new favorite. So PEMPT is my new favorite because I think it was last year a great review came out looking at PEMPT with BHMT and MTHFD1. All of them um, influence choline, which is a methyl donor as well. And when people are low in folate, they often turn to choline um, for supporting methylation, which can be a problem if the choline is taken from your cell membranes where we have that phosphatidyl, um, the, the choline. So we know that's important for the lipid membrane. So PEMPT converts ethanolamine into phosphatidylcholine. And there's a genetic variation within PEMPT that means that people don't 
um, produce that endogenous phosphatidylcholine as well, and therefore they rely um, more so on choline from the diet. And choline right. comes one of the best sources is egg yolks. Right. And what about things like as a as a supplement? Would they benefit more from the use of things like phosphatidylserine or indeed phosphatidylcholine? Oh, it's my new favourite right. because I can actually do something about it. And How I'm very interesting. Now, this, this is probably only an N of five by you, mind you. So I've really sort of been doing this since the end of last year. And mm. we're now in March 2018. So I, at the end of the uh, last year, when I read about this review, I really started paying attention to PEMPT, particularly in association with MTHFD1 and BHMT, um, because I don't often look at genes in isolation. And all of them are linked with that choline metabolism. Wow. But particularly PEMPT has a stronger influence. So I've actually done research on MTHFD1. I've, I've published a paper linking that with fertility things. I wish I knew about PEMPT 15 years ago. Um, but I think PEMPT has a, a stronger impact. Um, and what I did is I started putting these patients um, that, particularly if they had a sensitivity to eggs and I didn't think they were getting enough phosphatidylcholine in their diet, on the phosphatidylcholine, and as I said, this is this is not published. This is my clinical observation. But these patients I've put on the phosphatidylcholine have reported they feel better. And and those of you out there would know with nutritional medicine, often we don't get quick results. I mean, some people can have some B12 and feel great, but I had people coming back for different reasons, whether it was mental health stuff, whether it was gut things or fertility. But there definitely seems to be an improvement. Um, Mind you, it might be just this new exciting wave. I might put the next five people on it and not get such good results. But at the moment, I am putting the genes together with the diet and giving phosphatidylcholine and getting good results. So it's my new favorite. You just got you got my information on my new favorite <laughs> at the moment. Hopefully, it works for, for those out there that do this as well. Just following on from what you spoke about earlier, that you can have your gene, your genetic test, and that's static. Genes don't change. But you need to know a measurement of what the function of those organs or tissues are. What do you say about measurement? How should we be measuring and when? That is a great question. Um, as I say to most people, the genetics aren't a standalone test. Um, and if you do do them on their own, you really can only talk about risk or predisposition or susceptibility. So if someone um, comes to you and they say, well, you know, I think I'm estrogen dominant, and you might say to them, well, you know, why do you think that? They might have already done testing, um, but if they haven't, you, you actually want to test. And if you want to talk about why they might be estrogen dominant or you want to get to underlying factors that we've already discussed, you'll do the genetics. But you would actually want to be looking at hormone levels or you know, if you think there is some kind of inflammatory thing going on or oxidative stress because these are... Um, the drivers of things like PCOS or endometriosis or fertility issues, then you would want to look for these things. Um, you can do hormone testing, you know, obviously in the blood, the urine, um, and then even look for, you can do simple things like CRP to determine if someone um, has some systemic inflammation. And there are even a lot of functional tests you can do looking at oxidative stress. So it really depends on the patient, um, but having those supporting tests really helps you determine if those genes are expressing um, what you may be concerned about or, or helping you have, I guess, a marker because mm. what 
I love about doing that kind of testing is you've then got something to go back to. So the patient will come to you, you've done your genetics and you say, well, you're at risk of this or, or, or your genetics has helped you target your treatment. And you say, well, I'm going to focus here first because this seems to be, you know, a genetic weakness perhaps. Let's, let's say it's oxidative stress or um, one of those areas or it's a nutrient area. We've mentioned about you know, the choline. There's also a lot of genes related to vitamin D and things like that. So you might say, well, I'm going to focus here and you've got some testing and you can say, well, this is your vitamin D level now or this is your oxidative stress level or this is your level of hormone metabolites. And then depending on the treatment and how far along that patient is, by the way, if they need to change diet and lifestyle, it can be a longer process. Mm. But if they've already done that, you might say, well, you know, I want you to introduce some of these supplements. Obviously, diet is first, but we're assuming they've done a lot of that. So we're going to come in um, with, say, some of these supplements. And personally, I don't give a lot of supplements at once because you don't know what's working and not working. So it'll be sort of one thing, monitor how you feel. Let's, I'll give you an example. Someone comes to you and I haven't had a lot of these patients, but let's just say someone's healthy, they're not overweight, they're sleeping well, their diet's in order, but for whatever reason they've got you know, high estrogen um, and in particular the 4-hydroxy metabolites. Well, we might say, okay, you've worked on your gut, You've worked on your diet. Let's really focus on the estrogen. So we're, we're further down the track um, with their health journey. I might say, well, let's look at something, you know, a supplement like calcium D-glucarate or something to help them excrete that estrogen and then perhaps a supplement to encourage that um, CYP1A1, so something that's going to push that estrogen down the 2-hydroxy pathway. So you can start to really support that system. And then we'll say to the patient, well, I want to measure again in three months to see if the treatment is working. So having other tests allows you to measure and determine if your treatment is working. Often when it is working, the patients might, depending on financial situations, some of these things can be expensive, they may not want to do testing. They might just say, well, I feel better or I'm getting the results. I had a lot of weight on my hips because of perhaps estrogen. I'm losing weight or I'm not getting the mood swings or I'm not getting you know, sore and lumpy breasts. So you can go on symptoms. I I'm a scientist. That's how I entered the field of functional medicine. So I do love to test. So I do a lot of testing with my patients and most of them understand that. But you've obviously got to think about what that patient can afford and, and what's important for them. But So I like doing a lot of testing because it allows you to have a baseline and allows you to actually have a record of um, things that are improving or um, it's not always... Uh, it's not always easy sometimes we don't get the results we're looking for then you can say well why didn't we yeah. why didn't this happen we need to start looking somewhere else because actually I didn't get it right and I don't always get it right that's part of functional medicine you know the person is probably still getting better and um, improving their health but you didn't get the result you wanted why not what else is going on and then that makes you put your thinking cap on start asking more questions did we miss something in the history did we you know have, have we not addressed something so um, I do do a lot of testing and that helps me then develop my treatment protocols. Um, and as I said at the beginning, there's always the diet and exercise and lifestyle first, but then I do um, support that with a lot of supplements and the genetics and the testing is really what guides those supplements. Yeah. I'll add a little, my own little caveat with regards to measurement, because you have mentioned the uh, 216 ratio plus the four series of estrogens and 
if you are going to employ supplements which sway the 2 to 16 ratio, please, everybody, test for the 4 series. They are a separate risk. And you may be lulled into a false sense of security by thinking that you're positively swaying the 2 to 16 ratio. But if you don't measure the 4 series, you may be doing really catastrophic damage to your patients. So always measure the four series of uh, hydroxy and if you can, methyl estrogens as well. Great, great comment there. The testing that I use actually does look at um, the two, the four, the 16, and it gives me a um, a level of the methylated estrogen. Yeah. So I can actually see which pathway it's going down, which will help me guide the treatment, but then also um, what's the methylation like? Now, don't be confused. I've had some people say, oh, you know, I'm an under or over methylator based on some of this hormone testing. This is specific for the, for the catechol estrogens. It doesn't refer to methylation as a whole in the body. No. But if it is low, you do need to speak to them about, all right, what's the folate intake mm. like? What's the B vitamin? Um, is there some sort of toxic load or stress that's, you know, um, pulling on that uh, methylation pathway? So, so that's really important. And I'm I'm not sure if there's time, but I think you and I, when we when we initially uh, mentioned having this topic or, or this discussion, you you told me about some research around DIM and I3C, and I have to admit I didn't read those papers you sent me, but you you mentioned um, some really important information about that because I do sometimes use these supplements. Are you? Do we have time to share that? Well, m- look, my issue is um, with I3C is around a stability of supplements. That's been shown to be an issue. People tend to try and say that there's something as well, uh, you know, added into it to ensure stability without any proof of that. But from once you take it in your body, you've then got to look at condensation products. And I am, there is research to show that I3C has A, uh, effects on certain drug metabolism enzymes, so 3A4 in, in particular. So if oh, somebody's taking a concomitant medication, let's say the OCP, and that you have a pregnancy, where do you sit ethically um, or medically mm. medico-legally with that? So it's more to do with induction and control. But I stress the big thing is measurement. If you can mm. prove that you're swaying the 2 to 16 in a favourable thing as well as the 4 series, then go along with whatever you're doing with my blessing. But if mm. you can't or you don't know, then you're doing the wrong test. You may have noticed that I didn't say what I was using for the SIP 101 because I couldn't remember our conversation. I thought, hmm, I thought Andrew has some <laughs> yeah. strong information on that and good research papers I haven't looked at. <laughs> um, but it, I'm glad that you shared that with me. I will go back to those papers. I don't often give those supplements. I think hopefully I stressed it throughout the talk that, you know, I think if people really are working on the gut and the nutrition and the basics, all the stuff we spoke about at the beginning of this, people will will start to get well and it's not just about their hormones it's you know it's reducing the inflammation it's it's really getting them well from from the ground up um but there will be times where you know with certain patients and I have had a few they have done all these things and then you do really need to get in there and target particular supplements I so should, that's really interesting I should also add there there is a, a you can also give the um sulforaphane from broccoli sprout extract um, but yeah. again, it's got to be a stable product which will release glucoraphanin. So it's got to be stability is a real big issue. And the good thing with the sulforaphane uh, is it upregulates or switches on a lot of these detoxification right. enzymes. Yes. Yeah. Um, very powerful when you do get the right supplement um, when that is what is needed in that patient. 
Denise, I love the expansive knowledge that you have and how you bring it back down to a practical level with patients. And, you know, it's obvious that you've treated a heck of a lot of patients and seen what works, what doesn't, but also seen the natural variation of, of our genes and what lies within. So I, I thank you just from the bottom of my heart for taking us through a tiny snip of our genetic play with regards to sex hormones. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you for your time. I hope that um, everyone enjoyed that as much as I did, and I hope to hear from you soon. Bye. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Symposium will be held in Sydney on Sunday, the 16th of September, 2018. This ATMS special event will bring together five diversely qualified speakers offering new insights into diagnosis and treatment of PCOS. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to atms.com.au and click on the events tab.